Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim, and this week I'm joined by Tariq Hussein, who is a travel writer and journalist. He's written a book called Minarets in the Mountains: A Journey into Muslim Europe, which is soon to be published. Um, on this week's episode, we talk about how he got into travel writing. Um, he's also previously written for the Muslim Vibe, and from there went off to write for a number of other publications and also became a writer for Lonely Planet um, and and recently got into publishing this book of his. So uh, we talk about, um, I guess, in part the erasure of of Muslim heritage um, and and our kind of need to reconnect and reestablish our understanding of our own history and, and past and I guess the work that he's been doing in that space specifically. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Tarek. Salam, Tarek. Salam. Thank you for having me on, bro. Thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. Um, so I want to jump straight in because um, I think the conversation we're going to have today uh, centers for me around a lot of things that I think are quite interesting <laughs> and also important to myself. So travel, yeah. um, Muslim heritage, and then also, I guess, a bit of Islamophobia at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but if we if wouldn't we be a podcast without it. <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't be the Muslim vibe without a uh, exactly. conversation about Islamophobia. <laughs> but um, I guess to start off with right at the beginning, yeah. uh, you are a travel writer mm-hmm. um, and you've written, you've written for the Muslim vibe, actually, uh, quite some time ago. Yeah. Um, and, and various other kind of Muslim platforms. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of went big time mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> and started doing work with Lonely Planet, BBC, yeah. and various others. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, it'd be interesting. There's a couple mm. of things. I mean, firstly, I want to be able to explore and discuss, and I guess make the argument for travel, mm-hmm. um, because I feel like a lot of people, a lot of Muslims nowadays will will go on like a religious pilgrimage, mm-hmm. um, will go to their motherland, wherever that sure. might be, and then the odd like Dubai trip with their friends or exactly. family. Yeah, yeah. And that's not... That's it. I think what you're talking about is a distinction between going on holiday and traveling. And traveling. And, and, and we both know that there is a big, big difference. Yeah. You know, going on holiday will be something that is prearranged. It's normally a package holiday. Um, most things are booked in advance. Whereas travel, of course, it's that kind of, you know, um, cliched image of someone with a backpack and just wandering, you know, the earth and and making it up as they go along almost. You might have a final destination, you might have bought a few plane tickets, but you're kind of doing it off the cuff. And I think that's the big difference in in the way. I was going to say what's really interesting as well is that whenever I've traveled, Mm -hmm. the first question people have always asked, like, are we going to buy food? Like, there's not going to be halal restaurants <laughs> That's because that's you're a Muslim, bruv. All Muslims think about is food. When they talk about anything being halal, they're actually just talking about their food, isn't it? <laughs> but, but basically, that's what it is, right? And, yeah. and I think it's mm, it's mm. really interesting. And, and the experience I've had, at least, that yeah. whenever I've traveled, like my wife and I have been to... We, we went kind of... The first few years after marriage, we went every year to like a random country. So nice. Colombia, Japan, mm, mm. Uh, Malaysia, Malaysia's not that random, but mm-hmm. you know, we went yeah. to Borneo and, and there we did a lot of the kind of caves and all this kind wow. of stuff. We tried to do kind of different holidays. Yes. And and again, to be honest, it got to a point where I think after that we were like, we just want to go to Dubai. Uh, we just want halal <laughs> food. We want a holiday. We want to relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the adventure and the of kind course. of, like when you experience a different culture, and this is the thing, I, I wanted to start just talking about travel because mm, I, mm. I personally feel that when you experience a vastly different culture to yeah. your own yeah. and you're entirely out of your element you kind of on, on one level realize your insignificance in the world like yes. how small you are and it's very humbling Precisely. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time it just opens this whole kind of window to the world indeed, um, and, indeed. And, and the diversity that, that mm, truly does mm, exist mm, mm, and mm, there's so much learnings to take from different of cultures and everything mm. else well, so, to be honest, you know, like if we if we go back to the first article that I did write for you guys, that's what it really explored, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't expect you to remember every article that's been published on your site, but that's exactly... Ten, ten things exactly. that and, and, Muslims should know about and, and we spoke about the kind of real benefits and real rahmah and real kind of, you know, beauty of traveling and what it can do for you as an individual, as a character. I don't think it's any coincidence that part of the, the quote-unquote training of those who engage with the more spiritual, mystical, um, you know, aspects of Islam, yeah. that part of the training is to travel, is to wander. You know, historically, traditionally, if you look at the great mystics of the world, whether it's Al-Ghazali or whether you look at, you know, others um, that we could name, th- that's what they did. 
even even the guy we're going to talk about later, Elia Chelebi, the the Ottoman traveler. You know, he Elia is actually an, a, a kind of um, a, a sort of Turkish take on Aulia, which of course you know yeah. is is a Sufi term for the friends of Allah. Aulia, and yeah. and this is why he initially started traveling, because the more you travel, the less you have any kind of attachment and anchorage to the dunya. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the key reasons why you, you see it in the mystical tradition. But of course, in this day and age, we also travel for various other reasons. We travel because we want to enjoy the dunya as well, you know? So there, 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 there's lots of different reasons, but it's that immersion, I think, that you're, you're alluding to that really, you know, people enjoy when they truly travel. Mm. When you immerse yourself in local culture, when you when you have to live with hardship, when you don't have the things that you take for granted that actually tests you in a way that you wouldn't normally be able to do in this safe little bubble that we all live in now i think it's also for me at least quite a refreshing break you know when you get away from and, and, and again I'm, I'm thinking back more to like 10 years ago or so when yes. i was traveling mm. you you didn't have easily accessible internet exactly i remember going to internet cafes having yeah. to like email my parents <laughs> and things like that like that was what was nice about it as yeah. i said it's like the immersion into this new world and coming out off the grid and and completely yes. detaching from everything you knew yeah. and, and everything else right it, it's it's a strange experience mm. but I, I think you know for me that you know, the first thing i wanted to kind of at least get out of the way was was just making the point that i think you know for, for people that haven't traveled mm. um for people that have as you say holidays are one thing yeah. you can go to yeah. the, the most remote parts of the world and find mm. a five-star resort that's not what we're talking about no. I think it's about really, you know, getting in as much yeah. as you can. And taking yourself I, out of your comfort zone, Salim. Exactly. Because that's the key. I think, you know, the, the character development happens when you are out of your comfort zone. Mm. And this can happen in many ways, but you can do it in travel in safe ways. As long as people go and do that research. Like you said, me and you were traveling in the days of pre-internet, which makes us sound like ancient dinosaurs. And maybe we are, you know, but we had to rely on our wits. But we also had to go and do the research beforehand. Yeah, and yeah. I think in this day and age, one of the things that we have is, you know, with that with that black box, as they call it in media, the phone in our hands and everything is there. Mm. It gives us this false sense of security and it also makes us a little bit lazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, Whereas, yeah. you know, I, I was wandering around with dog-eared Lonely Planet guides. That's that's how I got about. Yeah, but yeah. it was that it was that really good research that gave me the confidence to wander into a kind of rural part of, I don't know, Southeast Asia and not feel out of my too too out of my depth. Obviously a little bit, yeah, yeah. but but not not so uncomfortable that I'm worried or I'm panicked, you know. Um and we're not talking about being reckless. We're talking about traveling, taking yourself out of your comfort zone but doing it in a way where you can still enjoy it, but you do not endanger yourself. Because let's be honest, I mean, there are, you know, you, you do have to take precautions when you're on the road as well. Uh, on that note, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Serpent, not documentary, the show, The Serpent on... Uh, yes, the amazing. Amazing also series, really, really, really terrifying. Really scary to talk about <laughs> exactly. traveling. Yeah. Um, so I just watched that recently, yeah. it just came to mind. But I, I guess I also wanted to ask for yourself, um, what kind of triggered that interest and spark when it came to traveling and and like you know you know was there a moment or was there something that was like okay this is this is why i love travel now mm, mm. um i think there were a few moments that i can um pick up and I'll, I'll try and sprint through one or two so one of the first things was um as a as a young person i was i was really kind of into my football and i was very very lucky that where i was growing up in the east end of london we had um some really really um relatively well organized football teams and they took us away on on these amazing um tours to to kind of international football tournaments okay. and so we were the, the most um famous one that we would go to or the one that we enjoyed the most was called dana cup and it was out in denmark but what would happen is it was it was the third biggest youth football tournament in the world so the whole world would come to that tournament and I, and I remember as a young person it was one of the first times that I'd been able to go anywhere other than back home as you put it earlier right and to just meet you know tall Senegalese people like actual people from the West Indies to, to hang out with um, Bengalis from Calcutta um, to meet Colombians you know yeah. firsthand I suddenly realized the world is it's an amazing place and, and I really want to see where these people are from. And that, I remember thinking that, but I had no idea how I was going to do it. I was 16, 17, 18, whatever it was. You know, so that was one of the first first moments. Um, I guess another another moment would be like when my wife and I went, we went on our honeymoon, like through a package holiday thing years and years ago yeah, to yeah. Turkey. But we, we both had that sense of adventure in us. So, you know, we, we, we randomly met this guy in the, in, the, in the market whose name was Omar. And he's still good friends with us to this day. He, he was selling watches. Years later, funny story, my cousin goes to Turkey and bumps into him. 
and makes the connection no that way. he's my cousin. Yeah. So, so this guy, right? Such a wonderful human being. He just says to us, oh, you know, you're Muslim and you're from um, England, blah, blah, blah. I, I want to show you Turkey. And we're yeah. thinking, yeah, well, whatever. You know, he's probably going to take us for a meal to his house. Yeah, he yeah. says, meet me the next day at 7 a.m. And then he takes us on this two-day road trip through Turkey to, to his like ancestral village and then to his friend's home in, in Izmir. And, and suddenly we're, we're kind of drifting around Turkey with him and his kids. And I just felt like, wow, you know, what, what, what an amazing human being. And there are so many of these out there all over the world. And, and I guess it's what I'm trying to say is that fear I might have had of the world, mm. that's when it began to dissipate. And that's when I began to realize that I really want to go out there and see it, see it all. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, those those are definitely two two moments that that kind of had a massive impact in that respect. That's awesome. I think there's always like when you were talking, I, I have a very similar memory from Egypt. Yeah, where I was I was looking for a restaurant. I just reached my hotel. I was traveling on my own. I'd reached my hotel and I was looking for a restaurant. And this dude was standing outside his shop, and he was like, "Oh, I'll take you to a restaurant." I'm like, "Oh God, I'm gonna get scammed." I don't know. I don't know how, but I'm gonna get scammed. And yeah. um, he was like, "Let me take you. Let me take you." Yeah. I was like, "Okay, cool, whatever." <laughs> We went to this really nice restaurant. Uh-huh. He he ordered. It was all in Arabic. I had no clue. I was, I was like 17, 18 at the time. 18, I think. And he ordered the food. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to get hit with like a 50. And he ate as well. I'm like, mm. oh, my God, he's scamming me. He's going to hit me with a 50 pound <laughs> bill. I'm going to have to foot it. And um, he paid the bill. I was like, okay. Mm. In fact, no, he made me pay my portion, which is fair. Yeah, yeah fair He enough. paid his. Mm. Then he took me to like a, uh, a nice like shisha cafe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, we, we sat there. We, we barely spoke because language barrier. We had chai. We, you know, we had like yeah. a... And then he's like, I'll oh, come into my, my, my shop now. And I was like, okay. He's like, I want you to meet my son. So I'm like, okay, cool. His son spoke English. So we had a bit of a conversation. Nice. And the son was like, just showing me the stuff. He's like, oh, you don't have to buy anything. Like my dad just thought you were lost and wanted mm. to help you out. And like the whole time, I feel really bad because the whole time oh, I'm like, this guy's going to scam me. He's mm, going to steal my kidney. Yeah. He's going to kill me. You know how, like, you, you, my mum. Like, this is why you got to stop watching things like Serpent, bro. <laughs> this is the thing. No, but you know, you, you hear horror stories yeah, and, and yeah. like your parents are always telling you, you know, don't talk to strangers yeah. or whatever. And especially yeah. when you're abroad and you can't speak the language, it can mm, be quite mm. alarming. But what I've seen and what I've realized mm, is that mm. actually a lot of people are very good and very decent. 100%. Um, and, and you have to be wise and you have to be smart. Yeah. yeah. But, but, as you said, like you, you have crazy things happen, and most, the most amazing stories will come yeah, out of these these yeah, experiences. Definitely. But you have to kind of put yourself out there. Yes, and 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 not just put yourself out there as well, but also sometimes you know go with your gut. Mm. I think the more we travel as well, the more we develop an instinct for yeah, these yeah. things. You know, and sometimes obviously when you when you're starting out, it's also good to do that little bit of research and know the kind of areas where you know, these kind of shady characters are likely to be mm. hanging about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and if you do that kind of, um, you know, research and go out there, then then obviously you, you're reducing the odds of getting skanked. But 100%. the reality is when you're on the road, you are going to get skanked. You're oh, going yeah, to yeah. get bumped every now and then and you're going to get done over every now and then. As long as it isn't nothing too cynical or too harmful, yeah. that's part and parcel of travel as well. If it's one kidney, you've got a second. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? It's, <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. So <laughs> coming back to kind of your, um, your, your kind of professional journey i think what's interesting is that as i said you, you started out um and, and you've you've been working in in journalism for a long time or in the media for a long time but i think the transition from writing articles for for you know platforms like the muslim vibe to then me seeing on your facebook that suddenly you're writing for lonely planet mm. that's not like a thing that happens very normally mm. um and, and i think for a lot of people that's also kind of like i know at one point in my life that was a dream of mine that i would love to be able to write for lonely planet because course, whenever you go on yeah. holiday like in the airport, that's all you're seeing is just a line, a row of Lonely Planet guys. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I've used them. And, and, you know, you talked about traveling with dog-eared yep. uh, books. I remember, um, I feel like I'm just reeling off countries here, but I remember when I went to China, yep. um, there was like this one bit about these tailor-made suits. And it was like in this town, you take this bus, yep. then you go here. And then it's literally like, there's no road names. It's like you, you take the second right and then it's the door on the left. Yeah. And I was like, this can't be right. And, and we followed it. Mm-hmm. We get there. The door on the left was there. We went through and I was like, I'm looking for a suit. Like, yeah, yeah. Do, do, you, do you even know? <laughs> and, and I got this amazing like three-piece tailor-made suit for like 50 quid. Yeah. I was yeah. Like, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, some, some of the stuff that we write in there, 
literally, we had to go there ourselves. Yeah. We had to physically, and to be honest, it's part of the contract, Salim. You know, it's not this kind of like, you know, some of these um, modern writers, they're, they're just basing it off research that they've done on the desk. We physically go to these places. Yeah. So when we tell you about a random bus that turns up once a week at, at 3 p.m., that's going to turn up at 3 p.m. You know what I mean? And, and this is what sometimes I think people in this day and age with the smartphone don't appreciate. Yeah. Not everything is online. The you whole know, world they, is they not. Think, yeah, they, yeah. they think they can just Google everything. But that one bus that comes once a week, unless somebody puts that information online, yeah. you're not going to find it. It. You know what I mean? And that's where the beauty of that kind of research was was on another level, you know. But of, of course, in this day and age, things are changing and things are adapting. But yeah, I, but I how, mean, how, yeah. Did, how did you find yourself writing for Lonely Planet? How did that come so about? So really, it was it was kind of, um, I think it was about timing, you know, a lot of these, we're Muslims, so it's about Qadr and all of that as well. But I think a lot of it was timing because you see what I did was I, I wanted, I didn't just want to write about travel. I mm. wanted to write specifically about Muslim heritage as part of travel. So I wanted to use travel as a vehicle to encourage people to explore heritage on their travels. And I felt like that would make my writing interesting. Mm. That was my niche, shall we say. Yeah. And it just so happened that I turned up on people's radar. So I actually got invited by Lonely Planet because they were looking for somebody who was a Muslim um, travel expert. Um, and of course, you know, they could have um, approached maybe 100 influencers if they wanted to, but they were looking for someone who knows how to do a deep dive, someone who researches, someone who looks into their history and heritage and, you know, in, in a way that is that is um, consistent with the Lonely Planet way. And, and they approached me and asked me if I would write about um, the Hajj initially, because um, this is how it all began. They said to me, you know, we've done a Hajj guide and we need somebody who knows their stuff to, to look over this and make sure it's cool and understands our style and tone and whatever. And that is essentially how I got my foot in the doorway. Mm. Um, shortly after that, um, you know, they, they asked me if I wanted to be a part of their pool of writers. So essentially what I became is I became part of like this inner circle of, of writers that get commissioned to do these gigs where you go abroad and you work on the, on the um, guidebooks. And having lived in Saudi Arabia myself before, when the Saudi Arabia guide became available yeah. it, it, it was a no-brainer because Saudi Arabia wasn't it, it, when, when I did the Saudi Arabia guide it still wasn't letting anybody into the country there were rumors that there would be a tourism visa soon but those rumors have been happening for 20 years so none of us actually took it seriously at Lonely Planet we're just like yeah whatever let's just see if you can get in there and do the book you know we'll worry about whether or not they're really opening up later and it was a no-brainer so they said to me do you want to be one of our authors like you Traveller, always dreamt of it. I was like, of course, hell yeah. What, yeah, yeah. Where do I sign? You know? And so I had to do this kind of mini gig, like locally, a couple of days training to prove that I could, you know, adhere to the kind of level of research and all of that. Um, but to go back to your to your point about how did I make that transition, it was really, I think, you know, they could see the quality of the work and they could also see that I had a niche and an expertise that they needed. And that's what I mean about timing. You know, we're, we're living, the zeitgeist of today in terms of writing is, is decolonized. Yeah, it's about, you know, um, looking for diverse perspectives, trying to get diverse voices in. And I think Lonely Planet recognized that they didn't have that. You know, most of the, and they will admit this themselves. I mean, I, I've gone and done talks at their headquarters and given talks about diversity. Most of their writers were white, middle class, male or female. Mm. You know, this is, this is the, conven and, and they, did a, they did a marvelous job. Don't get me wrong, Salim. You and I both benefited from that. But there's something to be said about a Muslim writing about mm. Muslim heritage, Muslim cultures, Muslim communities, so, so to speak. I, I, I was going to ask on that note, do you think that there's something that lends itself in the realms of travel mm. um, for it to be just a kind of middle class white person thing? Like, um, when like, you say lends itself, what do you like, mean? Like what I mean is that, that what, why, why do you think that Lonely Planet only had Mm. white people essentially. well um I, I i guess there's there's two two ways of looking at it one would be that you know this is a tr this is traditionally the domain of the slightly wealthier individuals you know gap year travel isn't something all of us can of do course, in yeah, fact yeah. my my travel history all came by slinging my kids on my back i didn't have the privilege of being able to backpack for a year with with you know i don't know daddy's bank account backing me or whatever you know and i i don't mean to disrespect some of these authors that i've worked with at all what i'm saying though is it's it's always like travel writing if you go back even back through history you will find that you know travel writing was something that was done by the wealthier classes because yeah. it was the wealthier classes that could travel yeah, yeah. and it was those that that were um educated enough to be able to then note it down and write it so the tradition grew out of that so historically it was a lot of um 
you know, the wealthier classes, the elites that were going to colonize places or, or, or traveling through Europe and that, and then reporting back what they saw. It grew out of that. And in, 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 the, modern, in the modern era, arguably, a lot of the people who are able to go out, first enjoy travel and then turn it into a profession, you need some kind of, you know, um, something to fall back on. And, and not all of us from diverse backgrounds have necessarily that. Necessarily have that. You know, I did a lot of work for nothing before yeah. I was able to start making any money from it. And not everybody has that luxury. So I was moonlighting mainly, you know. So, so uh, we did, uh, well, we are going to obviously talk a little bit more about this in depth. Mm-hmm. But I think it's worth asking the question now. Yeah. If we're, we're looking at, um, as you say, like wealthier individuals mm-hmm. who have the ability to fall back on their yeah. you know, trust fund, family money, whatever it might be, yeah. to be able to, to afford themselves the ability to travel mm-hmm. and to write about their travels. Sure. Does or do they bring their baggage with them mm-hmm. when they're writing and when they're exploring the Far East or like the, the, the Orient, let's say, mm-hmm. um, is there going to be that? that bias or that kind of lens at which they're looking at this through that's that's inevitable we, we all come with a bias there's mm. no such thing as absolute objectivity and people who have studied this academically will tell you this there is no absolute objectivity and what happens is we're all we're, we're all brought up in some kind of tradition we all have our own baggage i have my baggage i have my cultural backdrop and that informs my perspective the thing that i'm saying is that that perspective is absent Okay, it's not there at all. Um, you mean you mean your yeah. our perspective, exactly. or your perspective exactly. Okay. It's it's entirely absent, and therefore yeah. it needs to be there to balance things out. I'm not saying that the perspective of quote unquote the white middle class traveler isn't relevant. I'm just saying that seems to be the dominant perspective, and that can be damaging. Okay, but more importantly, if we start stepping into this now, um, all literary traditions they are all they all have a foundation. They all have a backdrop that they come from. They, nothing evolve, nothing develops in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Okay, and as I as I alluded to earlier, most travel writing began with colonial writing about places they visited. Okay, uh, or the the colonial classes mm. traveling to places maybe they haven't colonized it but they're them writing about they're their travel yeah exactly <laughs> or the, them writing about their travels across europe you know like the 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 great journeys that they do during the period of people like lord byron and whatever right now inevitably it, as as a class at the time who saw themselves genuinely superior to other races that's going to be written into the into the text that mm. they produce and if that text then becomes the foundations of modern travel writing you can see where i'm going with this yeah, right course, yeah. and so even the most well meaning travel writer today is still standing on the shoulders of that literary tradition is what i'm saying including myself we we were joking off air that sometimes you know i mistakenly use words like i discovered you <laughs> know i didn't discover nothing it was already there yeah, i just yeah. went and saw it and found it and wrote about it and so a lot of this stuff within english language travel writing which is the language we are we are dealing with here um often it's there and it's it's been so normalized it's very difficult to see un- unless you go and academically study it or you go and look at the kind of historical backdrop to the literary tradition which is why it's important to bring new voices in that, 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 it's, it's quite academic <laughs> no no, no it's, it's quite a lot it's quite a lot to think that mm. um like you said right even we, we can't remove our own individual cultural biases no and at the same time a lot of the work that we do today like in islamic tradition for example exactly scholars today will use the scholars of of yesteryear exactly, exactly. Um, and and build the foundation of their arguments on that now exactly. if you which is why we have overly romanticized Islamic history as well, Salim, if we're brutally honest. You know, <laughs> we, we look at everything with, with rose-tinted glasses yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. and we don't like it when somebody points out, actually, the Ottomans weren't that nice, you know. I it, know you love Ertural, but... <laughs> you know funny enough, I mean? we had an article that was kind of critiquing a bit of uh, um, Turkish politics recently, exactly. and, and, and yeah, you get that whole... Um, mm. People are becoming sensed, but, so but, but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that when you look at something which is, I think people would perceive as being neutral. So something Mm -hmm. like travel, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that there is inherently... um, That's what's scary. Everyone thinks it's neutral. Yeah, do you know what I mean? That's what's dangerous. And and there was an example which we're going to get onto in a bit, um, which I think just perfectly kind of paints that picture. Um, I I wanted to actually just come back a little bit to some of the other work that you've done. So there was the BBC radio documentary Mm -hmm. about um, America's mosque or mosques. 
mosques mosques but generally. obviously it came through one particular mosque which we can talk about and and, and this is where we had the whole i discovered joke but but <laughs> yeah, exactly. what i what i said to you was that you actually um pretty much found the history found the history <laughs> of this yeah. this mosque <laughs> that the the guys who were running the center didn't even realize mm. well they uh, didn't realize the significance of the it. significance yeah. so so can you can you just briefly kind of uh yeah. Tell yeah, yeah. Story. So this this kind of um, to tell the story, we have to go all the way back to a journey that I did with my family in a camper van around the Baltic. So this was like, you know, as I often do, um, we, we, we planned a trip around the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia um, and Estonia. Right. And we hired a camper van and we said, right, we're going to we're going to just go up and down. And obviously being being the history um, nerd that I am, I snuck in some Islamic heritage that I discovered. Right. And it turns out that there are Muslims that have been living there since 1398. Right, which is pretty wow. pretty phenomenal when you put it there. But not only were they living there, the original villages that they lived in were still there. And I was like, oh my God, I have to go and see well, this. Like descendants living there? Yes. The wow. original villages. And there are mosques, wooden mosques on sites there, Salim, that you know they're sitting on the site where potentially there was a mosque there 600 years ago. Because they're wooden, obviously, you know, they've been rebuilt through the ages. And these really indigenous looking mosques that look actually more like the local Orthodox churches when you look at them, mm. except they have a little crescent on the top. But anyway, so this, so as part of this, I, I ended up getting commissioned by the BBC to write about this history because it was pretty um, groundbreaking. Um, and I quote unquote discovered it. <laughs> and uh, I didn't discover nothing. The Grand Mufti who, who was there was the person who helped me find it all. Um, anyway, and when, when, when I started doing the research into the BBC for the BBC article, I realized that some of the descendants had made their way as part of the mass European migration to America during the turn of the last century. Um, and so I kind of, you know, like you do, you follow the trail and you work out, well, what's going on? Where are they? What are they doing? Mm. And it turns out they founded a mosque in Brooklyn um, in the early 1900s, which because it survived, there were other mosques founded in other places by other Muslims. But because this is the one that survived, it's the oldest surviving mosque in America. Now, the custodians are direct descendants of the original um, founders, mm. but... As a, as a community, they don't really engage with it the way Muslims engage with the mosque anyway. It started to become almost like a cultural center and whatever. Yeah. And so when we went over there and we did the radio program, because um, off the back of it, I, um, I, I kind of pitched for a two-part documentary. This is around the time um, Trump is running for presidency and he's spouting about, you know, how much he wants Muslims out and blah, blah, blah. So obviously it was topical. It was topical to do a program about the mosques of America. And so we, dis uh, we I nearly used the word discovered again. Right? <laughs> so we, we kind of focused the first part on, on that mosque and we focused it on another mosque called the Mother Mosque, right? Um, which was built by Syrians that went there during the time of um, when, when Syria was actually still part of the Ottoman Empire and it was known as Greater Syria. And they all moved out there. And, and that mosque in itself has a beautiful story about how Syrian Muslims and Christians together mm. built this mosque. So they became the first part when we did old mosque. And then we did one called new mosque to give a flavor of what the spectrum of Muslims in, in the US are like today. But both, I mean, all, all the narratives were fascinating because like, like over here in Europe, the, the Islamic history of, of, the, of the Americas, which is something else that I ended up writing for you guys about, is just completely, you know, ill-explored and unknown and very few people appreciate the depth of it so it's quite interesting um i, I mean looking at the, the fact that, that there's very little coverage i guess of the history in america um similarly you also looked at things in the uk and, and a lot closer to home so you were telling me again before we came on air about the the trails that you put together in woking um and and you you said some things that even i kind of raised my eyebrows at because i just <laughs> wasn't aware of exactly um and and it's i always find it interesting when we when we talk about muslim heritage the the the, the mind always goes to first the middle east yeah and then like the back home countries because there mm -hmm. are large established muslim mm -hmm. um communities in in uh the far east and in india and and, and that whole part of the world mm. Um, along with Africa and everywhere else. But British Muslim heritage, I think only very recently people have started to appreciate and discover and explore it. Mm -hmm. um, so so what, are the, what are the trails that you've put together 
so in the Woking. Tra- so the trails we put together, like you say, it's it's amazing. And, and so, sorry, also for people that don't appreciate what trails are, because yeah. I had to ask you as well. Of course, yeah. This is like an actual trail. Yeah. Trail. So it's an actual physical trail. So anyone, any of your listeners that might have gone to somewhere like Highgate Cemetery, where they pick up a map and they walk around and find the graves of famous people like Marx and whatever. It's we, we did a trail similar to that for the cemetery that's there. But we also did a trail where you follow the map and you go to what we believe, what we know to be three of the most important sites of Islamic heritage in Britain. Um, the Shah Jahan Mosque, which is the first purpose-built mosque, that beautiful white, snow white kind of Taj Mahal-like building in Woking. And then around the corner, you've got um, the oldest Muslim cemetery in Britain, mm. which was founded by the same person who founded the mosque. Um, and that was actually founded before the mosque was founded in 1884, which makes it technically the oldest piece of British Muslim real estate that we know of. Okay. Wow. So we, as part of the project with the Everyday Muslim um, project that I did the work on, we managed to get a blue plaque installed there to recognize that it's the oldest Muslim burial site in the country. But then around the corner from there, something that made you raise your eyebrows because you weren't aware, there was a Muslim soldier's cemetery. Mm-hmm. So that when all these Muslims were going out and fighting for the British Empire during the imperial period in World War One, World War Two, and they were dying, there was nowhere to bury them with any degree of... Um, um, respect or, or, or acknowledging their rights. And so what happened is after quite a bit of complaints and some say some German skullduggery, right? what happened is um, the, the War Commission commissioned an actual cemetery to be built near the Shah Jahan Mosque because it was the known mosque at the time. And so you have this beautiful building, I mean, sorry, beautiful um, space now known as the Peace Gardens because they've um, re, re, um, refurbished it and everything, where they buried 27 Muslim soldiers. Um, 24 of them fought and died well not all of them fought and died most of them fought and died for the British and it turns out three of them fought and died for the French which is something that had been overlooked until we came and developed the trails and they died fighting for the French because the French um, government was in exile in the UK so when they died they were buried here Um, so you have all these like you know overlapping um, levels and and what have you and and it's right in front of our noses mm. and up until now it's been neglected uh, and and you know we can go down the cynical line of why and who, who it benefited to not talk about this stuff yeah, yeah. but we, we can do that another time but essentially people can go and download the maps for free or they can turn up at the mosque who were, who were our partners on this exercise or the cemetery who were our partners so we partnered with all the historical institutes in the area and you can go and pick up these beautiful free maps mm. they're free absolutely free um, and then you can follow them around and we've had families go there and do this with kids we've had um, you know and, and we had the Oxford University turn up I took the history department on a tour there and they they very famously turned around and said that this has the potential to decolonize British history which which was like wow that's a know. bold statement this, this is the Oxford <laughs> Oxford University History Department. Do you know what well, I mean? Yeah. So it tells you that this stuff is right there. But what's, uh, and, and the reason they said that is because when you start looking at the people that are buried there that have mm. been forgotten, you know, or overlooked, we're talking about Abdullah Quilliam, the founder of the very first mosque in this country in Liverpool. We're talking about Marmaduke Pictou, the man who probably single-handedly made the Western world realize the, the, the real true meaning of the Quran as one of the most famous translators, Yusuf Islam, another one, um, I'm sorry, um, I was getting mixed up with Cat Stevens, but the other translator okay. of the Quran, who's really famous, his first name's Yusuf, and I always get the surname. Okay, I, you just killed Yusuf Islam for me for a second. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's still alive, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So it's Yusuf Ali. <laughs> okay, right. Yusuf Ali. Um, and then you've also got Lord Headley, one of the early um, converts to Islam, who who was obviously a lord. Then you've also got sirs in there that were converts. You've got royals in there that were converts. You've got um, Ottoman print, one of the last okay, Ottoman princesses. Princess well, right? She's buried there with her mum. You know, you've got even even up to the modern era, we've got Dame Zaha Hadid. You know, the British Iraqi architect, the amazing oh, architect. She there? Yeah, she's buried there as well. She's really? on our trail. Yeah. Um, and then I told you again, using that awful word "discovered," I refound. <laughs> right, I refound the grave of a Meccan princess mm. whose lineage goes directly back to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and right. and she's half quote-unquote British. She's actually half Irish, but at the time, the Irish were part of the British Empire. So she's, you know, in most sources, she's regarded as half British. But we've got somebody who's directly descended and, and her lineage is, is spot on. You know, we've, we've had mm. um, experts look at it. We've, we've looked at all the sources. She's the other branch of the family that are now the royals of the Jordanian family because they obviously claim to be direct. So it's two branches. And um, she's buried there as well. Um, and so we put her on the trail. And what we did is, with the big hitters, 
because we only had so much you know money We're, with the big hitters we did quite a deep dive on their history their heritage you know the founder of the mosque um wilhelm gottlieb leitner and people like that and we did some mini bios so people can really appreciate it and with the others you know most people can look them up but it's pretty phenomenal you know? I, I i was gonna say actually coming back to something you said earlier about deep diving um and and also like you know you 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 made the case for why it's important i think mm. you know what's fascinating is that one question always leads to another so you know it, it, you spoke about there being the the muslim burial ground for example and then then you spoke about 27 people being buried there and three of them came from france and the more the more questions you ask you just like unravel more and more history which i think is so fascinating and telling mm. in its own way like you mentioned the princess, for example. Exactly. How did she end up in the UK? What's her journey? And, and there's there's so much rich talk about heritage. Mm. Like it, mm. it's all there in history, right? But I think also when we talk about deep diving, it's it's interesting and, and significant. And I, I want your thoughts on because I, I think from from the sounds of it, your kind of specific uh, intrigues and area of expertise is in deep diving in mm -hmm. in really getting underneath a topic and like looking at it in its entirety mm. uh do you feel that when it comes to travel uh nowadays or, or just generally looking at this stuff that we've become a bit um fickle mm. and, and and by that i mean that you know like people will go to marrakesh to go to the market but it's for that like that insta shot the Insta shot, so they can buy that like classic Moroccan thobe <laughs> and take pictures with their friends yeah. with a snake yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Of course, it, has has have we lost the essence? Because also right at the beginning we were talking about the essence yeah. of travel, mm -hmm. um, and and you know like the transformative effect it can have on us, and even like exactly. the spiritual. We although exactly. we didn't go deep, but it has you know spiritual kind of realities. And, mm -hmm. and again, when you were talking, I was thinking of the, the 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 hadith of the prophet that you know seek knowledge even if it means going to China. Exactly. And I always found that to be incredibly significant because um, China is just like a random part of the world. Mm. But again, it's there's this thing about travel and and mm -hmm. the transformative effect I think exactly. it can have. So um, I guess, yeah, briefly your thoughts on mm -hmm. um, where we're at today. Um, I want to say Instagram culture, but you know what I mean? Like just modern yeah. travelers. Yeah, uh, it's, it's clearly a, a kind of, um, how can I put it? It's, it's, it comes out of that kind of hedonistic side of traveling, so to speak, you know, mm. where you travel to immerse yourself in, in a different way to what me and you have been talking about. You know, it's, it's the classic... Um, uh, what, what you might call the 18 to 30 club or whatever back in the day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where people go and they just want to indulge. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, a, an evolution of that to an extent. But also, not everybody is interested in traveling the way you and I are. And, mm. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Some people do just, you know, they, they work hard all year. They save up all their money. And, and they just and, want and to splash out. Exactly. And, and they fun. just want yeah. to go and they want to take those pictures and they want to drive those cars and they want to climb the Burj Khalifa and they, and, you know, and they want to buy the little trinkets and whatever and come home. Yeah. And, and that's absolutely fine. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But that's clearly the more commercial side of travel. And we, we see that that is the one that... Um, most um, influencers and that are, are geared up to try and target and, and engage with because of course when you're when you're writing just from from a writing perspective when you're writing the top 10 things to do the the top 10 places to eat this there is no deep dive there and there's there, nobody wants a deep dive either they're literally on the plane probably scrolling that list thinking right i'm gonna eat there i'm gonna go there and i'm gonna do that yeah and they build up their itinerary but of course you and i having having been you know brought up on on the lonely planet guides and whatever else it doesn't matter whether it's about Muslim heritage or that Buddhist temple or, or even it's that spiritual stuff. tree. Yeah, yeah. We want to know the story behind yeah. it, you know? And, and, and that's, that's a different type of traveler. And I think we do need to make that distinction and recognize that not everybody's going to be interested in the stuff I'm doing, just in the same way I'm not interested in the, you know, the woman looking off into the distance as she takes her picture in front of but whatever. I always think that it, it, it can't be very fulfilling um that kind of uh, checkbox thing so you know like like yeah. you talk about that you know whenever i've been anywhere yeah. you, the first thing you google is top things to do in this city <laughs> top places to eat whatever exactly and and for me there's always like there's almost like a thing okay i have to do these things because like they're the most significant sides fomo not even fomo <laughs> no but you know there's something there yeah but yeah it's not about going there mm -hmm. taking the picture and leaving mm -hmm. like there's mm -hmm. actually often um there's a lot of depth in exactly. in the history and the culture exactly. and whatever else and mm -hmm. so like i remember 
um oh god this is travel story hour for me but i remember being in lebanon mm-hmm. and and i think it was biblos where mm-hmm. they've got the ancient roman um ruins yes of, yes, of, of like the i think it's biblos mm-hmm. but anyway so, so i remember going there and this this guy was came up to us like oh do you want a, a guided tour mm-hmm. for like 25 dollars or whatever i was like yeah. listen mate i'm all right I, <laughs> I, I i actually studied like classical civilizations so i was yeah, like i'll yeah. be all right i yeah, can yeah. blag it <laughs> we get there and there's just like it's just huge ruins and there's no plaques anywhere nothing. there's nothing so i was like actually i kind of I could have done with that guy yeah so i actually <laughs> went back like head down i was like i'm really sorry that i i blanked you on the way up can i'll pay you 30 if you don't mention the fact but no like and then mm. and then we had like an amazing hour two hours where he, mm. he took mm. us around mm. and showed us everything and, and i was annoyed because i actually did know half the stuff but i just couldn't identify of it course, because, because it's all just random you're, ruins. you're not you don't have that local knowledge but know? but mm. it's it's i think like for me when if you walk through these ruins they look amazing and we took a bunch mm. of pictures mm. before actually because we we left them we took a bunch of pictures and we were like actually we we could just leave now but let's actually learn something at the same yes. time yes. um and and that's where the real added benefit is and, mm. and like where mm. you where you actually open your mind and, exactly. and it, it takes you i guess somewhere else um in your own head mm. um but, but that's not for everyone yeah, I guess so. You know, and, and but, but this fear is, I guess yeah, coming back sorry, coming back to the yeah. question, I, yeah. I feel like um it's it's a waste mm. going to a site like that or anywhere exactly. Exactly. and and just getting the picture. Yeah. Because ultimately what's that for? I mean, people nowadays don't take pictures for their own photo albums at home. Uh-uh. They take him for that's to say you've been somewhere to show someone for social media consumption, mm, right? Mm, for the mm, likes, mm. for the plaudits exactly. and for everything else. And and I'm I'm victim of this as well. I do well, this course. as well. Everyone yeah. does. Yeah. But I think uh, deep down, we kind of need to assess mm. ourselves. And like I've actively tried to kind of hold back on on sharing everything and yes. all my stories. and Because then I've got nothing to talk to you about on a podcast, right? Well, no, it's, it's, you're, you're <laughs> spot on. And obviously, we're part, it is partly a victim of the age we live in. You mm. know, um, we live in a very narcissistic age. You know, there's yeah. no getting away from that, you know, um, and, and you can see that we, we are all victims of it. I've, I've got social media presence. I have to have it. You know, I can't I can't survive as a, as a travel writer if I don't have it. And so I realized that I also have to provide that kind of content for some people as well. I've done listicles. You know, I've I've done pictures for the sake of showing people, oh, look, this amazing thing without going too hard in on it, because not everybody is into that. And, and we have to also appreciate that, you know. And my wife kind of set me straight on this. I can't start sounding too much like a snob. Do you know what I mean? Like some people just want to go lie on a beach and, and, and yeah, have, yeah, yeah. you know, for want of a better phrase, have a few drinks and have a nice meal and then come home. And and that's enough for some people. Mm. And that's what they want to do. But you and me, maybe, we, we do like to go there and we do want to know the significance of that pile of rocks. And, you know, we want to know. Because like you said, you, you, you studied classics. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a historian. <laughs> it's yeah, inevitable yeah. we're going to stand in front of the rocks and muse over what on earth <laughs> yeah. went down. While people are just laughing, like, bro, somebody just put those rocks there five minutes ago. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I think it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I mean, coming on to, like, your latest project now. Mm. Um, and also, I guess if you have, you, you one other bit I forgot to mention was the kind of heritage stuff that you've done in Thailand. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I guess you, you mentioned that you, you'd been out there during covid or before covid so it's pre-covid pre-covid um, and i was and this is this is what i meant about um being able to kind of i was in the right place at the right time so lonely planet obviously were looking for somebody who's a muslim heritage expert and sometimes you know even even they don't know why they need somebody like me and initially they brought me in for the hajj obvious right hajj saudi all that kind of stuff but then i started to point out that you know you're going to places and you're not covering the islamic heritage in a way that is really representative yeah. of what's going on on the ground and part of the, Part of the reason is because the people you traditionally send there, their radar isn't on that. Their radar is on something else, and that's fine. You know, like I said to you before, it's about cultural baggage. So the problem I had with Thailand um, that I made to my the case I made to my editor is all we ever hear is about the Muslim insurgency in the south. All we ever hear is about the issues and the problems and the and the um, terrorism and whatever else. Right? None of it really affects tourists because it's a kind of you know internal battle going on between the Muslims in the deep south. And, and the police, that's what we were told. And I said, look, I want to try and change that, at least in the guides. You know, I want to go and I want to explore the history and heritage and I want, to, I want to talk about the food. I want to talk about where this stuff comes from. I want to talk about the beautiful mosques that we never see in your guides, you know. We mm. see some, you know. Lonely Planet does, does cover bits and pieces. And when I did that, I was blown away. 
I was absolutely blown away. You know, I found myself Tomb Raider style, climbing up hills through jungles, finding like fortresses built by a sultan in the 17th century that had never been written about in, in an English guidebook. Yeah. You know, and, and I was just like, whoa, what's going on here? Why, why is none of this? Well, I knew why, because, you know, I've been in the game long enough. And so I worked, I, I did what I could in the time I had, as well as covering the basics that I have to cover that, you know, all the stuff that Lonely Planet normally does. I tried to add to that. Um, and one of the things I, 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 as I mentioned to you is like, I, I put in a few trail maps within, within the guidebook where you can go on walks and whatever to explore Muslim food, um, go and um, wander around Muslim villages in the South. Mm. Um, and in this case, the historical forts and even the tomb of a sultan whose name happens to be Sultan Suleiman Shah. And every time I mention that, obviously, the Ertual fans get very excited, but it's not. This is a, <laughs> this is a Persian Thai sultan who, who's buried there, yeah. whose tomb I visited and, and found and um, not found. Again, I've done it again, right? It, I didn't find you nothing. It. You didn't find I it. I didn't discover it. I just went and wrote about it, right? And, um, and I put it into the guidebook. And as part of that trail, um, the, the guidebook that I put it in, it, was, it went to publish and then COVID came. So there's about, there was about six books that I was contributing to about Thailand because Thailand's the best seller for Lonely Planet that have really? all been put on hold permanently because of COVID. Um, and I don't know if you're aware, but um, Lonely Planet is going through a massive transition now. Um, it shut down a lot of its offices. It's been bought by a new digital um, company. And so the future is quite uncertain. And from a very selfish perspective, I'm absolutely gutted because all that <laughs> stuff I did on Muslim Thailand may never make you see the light of day. You know, so I, I really Can don't you know. repurpose it anywhere else. No, it's not mine. Yeah, and when I do that kind of research, Lonely Planet owns it all, so it's entirely up to them what they want to do with it. But um, rumor has it that when they do, you know, get yeah. back get back on their feet, because um, Lonely Planet Thailand is one of their best sellers, they will probably publish their best sellers again. Mm. Yeah, but they will have to do an update because for two years since, oh sorry, yeah, it will be two years once they go for it. They'll have to do an update because a lot of the research I did, businesses might not have survived. Places have changed. New rules have come in. So they'll still have to do some research before they can publish that. But I was really excited about that because I had so much stuff in there that, that was fresh. If you accidentally leave your laptop unlocked, <laughs> the Muslim Vibe might have an exclusive <laughs> Thailand series that we yeah. push out. And then, and then I'll get sued because this is all being recorded. With an unnamed source. <laughs> it's fine. You can throw you on. It's, it's a necessary evil, I think. Exactly. You can, you can exactly. Exactly. And, you know. Yeah. So, but that was that was like that was amazing. Like one of the things that I I remember coming back with and people didn't realize is every a lot of people go to Thai restaurants and they love the masaman curry and a lot of people don't realize that comes from the word musulman. Musulman. Yeah. And so, I can always hear it afterwards. Yeah, like you exactly. never know it until but someone that's what says I'm it. About. It's in front of your eyes. But until somebody <laughs> points it out. And and then when I started looking into the historicity of it and I went to the areas where this 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 dish evolved, yeah. it's because it came from Persian culture. So this is something that a lot of people also didn't realize. It came from Persian culture because um, the kind of post-medieval Thai um, empires, they were fascinated by Persian court culture. So they would like mimic the rituals. They, they had like um, Persian travelers at their courts. They had Muslim travelers from all over the world at their courts. And this is how um, the food came in, mm. as well as items of clothing, various traditions, which I put into the book that may never be published. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that we got some of it at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, so now coming on to um, Minarets in the Mountains, a book that will be published. A book that will be published, inshallah. <laughs> um, what's What's the story there? This is you going through Europe, um, and and I guess again, uh, I was going to use the word yeah, for you, yeah, yeah. discovering. Let's yeah. use it. Um, but no, I, I mean, I mean. Uh, Putting in writing, documenting, documenting. Yeah, that's a good word. Muslim, Muslim, <laughs> Muslim heritage yeah. in in Europe. Yeah. So what's what was the project about, and how did it all yeah. come together? So the the project were, was a very personal one because as you as you know, Salim, it was with my family. So my my family and I were on a road trip through the summer, and um, I deliberately wanted to take them to a part of Europe that had an indigenous living. Muslim heritage and culture. This is the big difference, you know. All of us now are have some inkling of something went down in Spain, you know, and we know that there were Muslims there at one point, yeah. but we know they're not there anymore. Not the original ones. Of course, there's loads of um, Moroccan Muslims there now. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, North African Muslims. Um, so I wanted to take my children and my family on a journey whilst doing the research, but also give them that experience of recognizing that they have their own indigenous 
Muslim heritage as Europeans. And that was really important for me. Um, but I also wanted them to recognize that this part of Europe, which is the Western Balkans, countries like Serbia, Albania, you know, um, Kosovo, um, Bosnia, I wanted them to recognize that these countries are actually Europe as well, regardless of the way in which there's this dichotomy that's been created, this, this split that's been created, where when we talk about those countries, we have to say, we have to qualify it with Eastern Europe. Nobody ever tells me to qualify Germany with Western Europe. Do you know what I mean? So um, I, it was... It was going to be uh, uh, an experience for them, but of course, for me, it was also going to be the premise of a book because I wanted to do something that would enter the mainstream. Th this stuff is in academia. You know, you can go and find this stuff on bookshelves in academia, but I wanted to put something in the popular mainstream that everybody could access mm. and, and engage with that would allow them to popularize the notion that there is a living indigenous Muslim culture. In fact, yesterday I was talking to my Bosnian friend and he was saying, it just occurred to me Muslims are more indigenous to Europe than white people are to America. And I was like, bro, don't be saying that too loud. Do you know what I mean? But it's true, yeah. right? When you think about it, right? The, the white colonial powers that went to the US, they're what, 300, 400 years old max? Mm. Whereas Muslims have been here since the 8th century, 7th century. You know what I mean? And, and the, the Muslims that I went and visited, their descendants go back at least five, 600 years. So it was about normalizing that. It's interesting. We, we had... Um Amra, who, who is an author on the podcast, Bosnian author, mm. and she was writing about her experience um, surviving the, 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 the genocide and everything that took mm. place. Mm. Um, and, and we had a little conversation on, on that podcast episode about how, you know, Muslims from that region, for us and for the majority, don't look Muslim. They yeah. look European mm -hmm. and they're very much overlooked. And like you talk about how indigenous they are to Europe, yeah. um, we, we kind of overlooked that historically. Mm. And I think even as Muslims, they're not seen as like mm. the right type of, they don't look Muslim. So we, we completely overlook yeah. them. But why is that? I, I don't know. You, well, well, this is, you, this you're the expert. This is one of the things, <laughs> yeah, this is one of the things that I tried to argue. Obviously, there are, there, there are probably a number of reasons, but I think one of the reasons is because they have deliberately been othered Mm. in the in the european narrative you know when you look at what europe is these guys um and and it's not actually it's not just the muslims here we're talking about just eastern europe generally it's been othered and so my kind of um thesis argument whatever you want to call it in the book um is to make the point that maybe it's been othered because it was historically muslim you know because the whole region was historically the Ottoman Muslim Empire. And so for, you know, for from from about the 14th century up until the early 20th century, this whole part of Europe was Muslim. Would you would you go so far as to say that that historians have lied? I, I wouldn't say they've, they've lied. Oh, we, we've had incidents where they've bent the truth and historians have deliberately left certain bits of information out. Yeah. Okay. But I think the way in which that part of Europe has been um, presented to us, um, it's been deliberately kept at arm's length. And it's been deliberately seen as something different to what they deem to be Europe. But w w why, why would you not go so far as to say that they've lied? Be the reason I'm asking mm -hmm. is because what I would argue is that systematically, mm -hmm. a narrative has been put in place yeah. to other mm -hmm. Bosnian Muslims, hence leading to the genocide that took place and everything mm -hmm. else that mm -hmm. happened there. Right. You've spoken about othering the same way that Amra did. Mm -hmm. And and this whole narrative that has existed has led to people being killed and everything else. But also this lack of appreciation and acknowledgement of the rich history that does exist mm -hmm. and and i think with with more of that and more of appreciation and acceptance at a systematic level mm -hmm. we wouldn't have the modern problems we have in that region mm -hmm. and, and generally speaking so mm -hmm. do, do not think it's it's they've been selective is the best way to say it Salim, without kind of because you know but then i would suggest <laughs> that i've read all of the history of that region and i haven't of because course. most of it is written in a language i can't access yeah. let's be let's be blunt but where i have written history that has been very very selective it's clearly left out certain bits of inf information and what people also need to recognize is history isn't science it's not facts it's interpretation mm. of certain facts maybe yeah and so it's about how that's interpreted. And some people listening are going to say, yeah, this is about your interpretation. And it is. That's right. This is my interpretation of that history. And you might not agree with it. But if that interpretation is based on certain facts, it's going to be difficult for you to denounce that. Okay. So, for example, we were talking off air. One of the facts is the Mostar Bridge, the beautiful Mostar Bridge in Mostar, was built by Ottomans. Yet, 
up until the early 20th century, we had travel writers, historians, even apparent architectural experts from the West claiming it was built by Romans because they just could not accept that Muslims could build something so beautiful, even though there was inscriptions on the bridge that said Sultan Suleiman. They said, oh, this has been faked, and you know they've, they've scrubbed out the original Latin ones. And one, one female um, travel writer, English travel writer, um, she, she turned around and described it, something, and I'm paraphrasing, um, something along the lines of, you know, it's, it's kind of this Latin architectural marvel in the midst of barbarism. And and and, wow. and I kind of borrowed that to 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 call my my chapter for the for that particular um, visit um, a, a, a bridge amongst barbarism or, or the barbaric bridge or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. off the top of my head. But yeah, it's it's that kind of. So you this know, isn't so, sorry. So this isn't a travel book that you've written. It's more of like a. Uh, it's travel literature. We call it travel literature. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. not a guidebook. Yeah, yeah it's not a guidebook. Yeah. yeah. So there's guidebooks. Obviously, that's for somebody else to carry around mm. but this is what what is known as armchair travel so in other words you go on a journey with me by reading it it's travel literature it's it's what people like william dalrymple historically read i mean wrote sorry um eric newby bill bryson all these people um and so it's armchair travel you're meant to you don't have to leave in order to experience mm. the place because they're taking you <laughs> and i guess c- c- the names you just mentioned are very alien to me and i feel for a lot of uh, muslims who predominantly probably will be listening to this also alien to them oh, of course, yeah. um as will the notion of armchair traveling in this way like i know uh is it jack kerouac who's got the the, the book the famous book where he he went from uh the east coast to the west coast of america on a on a motorbike am yeah. i right with that Sam? you impressed that i know that <laughs> but yeah no so, so, and so there's, that, a, there's that famous guy Levinson wood who's who's all over the tv walks afghanistan yeah, see, you, like you've that. lost me on that I one lost you again all right okay ben fogel on the telly? Uh, still not there. Ben right. Foster, goalkeeper. Jack Whitehall with his dad. There we go. Now we're talking. I had to keep dropping it. I had to keep dropping it. We got, we got Until there. Until we got to trash TV. <laughs> we got, we yeah, got yeah, there yeah. in the end. Yeah, um, but essentially that's what it no, is. No, but, but so, mm. I mean, that's the thing. But like, I also, I feel like this, 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 this whole genre and this whole mm, thing, mm. what's the... Sounds like a silly question, but what's the what's the benefit in reading this? Like, mm-hmm. what what someone picking up your book yeah. who hasn't read Travel Rising? Because yeah. I know, as you said, in the mainstream, this is a book for the mainstream, not just for mm-hmm. Muslims. Mm-hmm. People will appreciate your own personal bias mm-hmm. and nuance and learn a, a and my journey and, and your my journey, journey. Yeah, and and learn a different take on history, but also like yeah. through through the lens of your eyes. Exactly. But for someone who hasn't come across this kind of work before. Yeah. What's what's the attraction? What's the attraction? Yeah. So the attraction is obviously that you are actually on a journey with us. Yeah. And so when we experience certain things, when we meet certain characters, you know, it's not just dry history throughout this. You know, mm. we, we, we turn up in places like, for example, we turned up in one place called Novi Pazar in the south of Serbia. Now, Serbia to everyone is an, is an Orthodox Christian country. We turn up in this town and we've got we've, we've ordered some pizza and, and there's there's sausage on it. And we're like, OK, look. You know, sausage means pork to us, right? We're from the West and, you know, um, from Western Europe. So I, I asked the question, you know, um, is this is this pork? And and the guy laughed. He laughed at us. He, he, he laughed at me and said, don't you know you're in a Muslim town? And I was like, what? What do you mean a Muslim town? You know, I'd seen a few minarets, but apparently the whole town is more or less Muslim. This is in the south of Serbia. Wow. And, and so you have moments like that and then we're eating the pizza and we're sitting in this town square and suddenly there's like there's this stage set up and we're wondering what is this stage about you know like when you go to Falga Square in the summer and there's stages and we're thinking I wonder what's going to be this whole choir of Muslim girls turns up and starts singing these nasheeds in the middle of the square in a Serbian town wow. you know so you're not just going to learn about how great Sultan Suleiman was, if indeed he was great, or Mimar. You're also going to learn about these actual experiences that you probably experienced on your travels, mm. and you're hopefully going to laugh with us, and you're going to cry with us, and you're going to feel sad. So it's about the journey as well. Mm. But in interwoven into that is, of course, the history, the heritage, the questions I ask, because this is also a journey of a British Muslim family wondering what it means to be Muslim and European today. So that's that's the narrative theme that's running through as well. And for people who don't want to buy the book, what's the conclusion? What, <laughs> what is, does it mean? There is no conclusion. There's no, that, we ain't getting that kind of spoiler. You didn't pay me enough. <laughs> um, well, no, but, but genuinely, I, I mean, that, that question to you, like w- when it comes to uh, being a British Muslim and, and, and everyone's mm. sick to death of hearing, this, are you British first or yeah, Muslim exactly. first? 
but but what's your take generally on on Muslim history heritage in in Europe? Mm. Is there enough to be celebrated, and is it a real thing, or are we just clearly? I, I mean, I've written a whole book over nearly a hundred thousand words. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's clearly I believe that. And, compelling enough and argument. And you know what, Salim, I am only you know chipping away at the tip of the iceberg. And that tells you what you need to know. There, mm. there is so much of it. So much of it is ill-explored. You know, the Baltic story that I told you about that took me to America. That's yeah. got nothing to do with the Ottomans. There's a whole book there as well. I'm not going to give away all my ideas in case somebody else runs off and writes them. <laughs> but there's the Spanish stuff. There's the Portuguese stuff. There's the Sicilian stuff. There's the stuff in Britain that I did the trails on. There's loads of people researching mm. all of that. Do you think there's enough people currently looking at this stuff? Or, yeah. Or not? Yeah. Well, uh, obviously, uh, because I... Uh, move in those circles I yeah. know of you know okay so for you it's like everyone's doing it but I guess no not everyone I, I know the nerds <laughs> I know the historians yeah, I know yeah. the I know the people that are into this because it's a small circle and we keep bumping into each other at, at conventions Try, trying to discover <laughs> like new <laughs> things conventions and stuff <laughs> so so I know the people doing this there's there's obviously not enough people doing it yeah but um my I, if, if you were to ask well what makes what I'm doing different to what they're doing is I guess my kind of USP, if there is one, is I, I want it to become a part of the normalized mainstream narrative. And, and one of the ways I do that is mm. I try to bring it to the fore through things like travel writing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, that's what I'm really keen to do. But there are so many questions about our heritage in the West that we, we haven't answered. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that there's a, there's a gold coin sitting in the British Museum that has the Shahada on it. And it was minted by an Anglo-Saxon king. What the hell is going on there? You know, I, I, one of the historians was joking the other day. He can see a whole kind of Ertural style, you know, drama being made about some sultan in, uh, um, you know, in, in the UK back then. <laughs> can you imagine? So w there is so much stuff mm. that has been ill-explored, misrepresented, and for want of a better word, suppressed. And, and I think um, it's, uh, I guess, in, in a sense, quite noble of you to, to try and um, take the fight public. And, and I say public, sorry, I mean mainstream, yeah. because it's it's one thing to for us on like the inside to acknowledge these histories mm -hmm, and to mm -hmm, know these mm -hmm, things, mm -hmm. but then to to have that. And, and I think you know when we talked about narratives and like mm -hmm. on a broad scale things changing, I guess what you're trying to achieve is for the norm to be a different perspective and lens by which people look at things, or at least a more nuanced one, a more wholesome one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We, that's, we, that's really all I'm all I'm trying to do. And and I think nobles are, are quite a strong word, and I <laughs> I do. I can retract it. it if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's take that out. <laughs> right, but um, no, you're, you're spot on. It yeah. is something that is very challenging, and none of this has been without challenges. It's been very difficult sometimes to get the support. It's been very difficult to to write about this stuff, even to get a publisher. You know, it, it's been very very tough. And it's a it's it's a very lonely space in mm. that respect. But at the same time, of course, there is that part of me that's thinking this is very necessary. You know, I'm, I'm a father. I've got children. You know, they're, they're the next generation. I don't want them to have all the same issues that we had. You know, about belonging, identity, yeah, yeah, all yeah, of that. Yeah. I, I want them to know a bit more of the picture. I don't I don't pretend that I'm going to somehow present the entire picture, mm. but I'm going to tell them that there is another picture that they can look at as well. You know, this is not to completely discount the existing history at all or, or or the existing narratives it's just to say that we need to have all of these narratives there so that people can select the ones that they want to relate and connect with rather than appear invisible in, yeah. in the narrative which is what's happening a lot at the moment that's awesome and um with regards to the book when when does it come out so the book went out on pre-order something you failed to mention is that it became a top 10 bestseller I, I, noticed that you, you. I, I noticed that you kind of... <laughs> no, I'll go in my I'll intro, do don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so when it, it went out on pre-order and in the first week it did really well, which was which blew my mind, awesome. absolutely yeah. blew my mind. And, and the real reason I'm mentioning it is because I think even for somebody like me who's unknown, you know, just to have a topic like that in, on, the, on the mainstream shelf, the reason it did so well is because of the hunger people mm. have for this stuff mm. right now. And so when it went out on pre-sale, it was about i think two weeks ago but it will officially be available in june but nice. it's available to order on pre-order all over amazon and waterstones and wh smith and all these places we can put the links in the description but I, I i think that's great man like i i i think for me personally one thing i love is just the the journey that you've been on the fact that we touched base like what five six years ago exactly when when the muslim vibe had just started out and and you were writing for and us i was just starting out with travel writing and you were just starting out with travel <laughs> writing and and now we're, we're here on this like exactly. amazing podcast you, you've and this got this amazing studio. studio in central london next to oxford circus you know and <laughs> 
there's like BBC <laughs> next door doing their thing. Exactly. Uh, but no, thank you so much for coming well, out thank, here, man. Thank you really for having appreciate me, man. It. I, I thoroughly appreciate the love and support you've shown. And one of the things I do want to say is I, I do want to shout out to the love and support from the community because the reason it did so well in pre-sales is because the community got behind it as well. 100%. You know, including yourselves. Awesome. I need to order my coffee now. <laughs> as soon as we're done. He still ain't ordered it. I, he told me he ordered it. <laughs> this, is, this is shocking. I hope you've got that on the <laughs> All right, bro. Thank you very much no for worries, your time, man. No I appreciate worries, it. Man. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, man. Thank you. That was wonderful. So that was my conversation with Tarek. Uh, lovely guy. Really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we discussed and, and I spoke about some of my own tr kind of travel experiences. And I, I think for me, you know, one of the overwhelming things that I, I wanted to get across in the conversation and, and just to kind of put out to people is that I think, you know, we, we do need to start venturing out and and not just holidaying, but actually traveling and exploring the world and starting to learn and understand different cultures. Because I think, you know, if you're fortunate, um, like myself, to live in a city like London, it's so diverse and cosmopolitan. Um, that there's just so much kind of richness that you can kind of learn from with regards to others but the unfortunate reality is that often we kind of stick to our own and we stay in um, maybe areas that are um, populated by one ethnicity or socially we only kind of hang out with people that think like us and look like us and talk like us um, and I think that can be quite limiting and, and unfortunate when, when there is the potential to, to really kind of um, get out there and learn so much uh, by by seeing the world um, but also I think you know the work that he's done um, and is continuing to do is is fundamentally really important in terms of reconnecting us with our Muslim heritage and, and re-establishing and understanding um, the heritage that does exist within Europe and I think also you know in part attempting to kind of rewrite not necessarily rewrite but uh readdress um a lot of the uh things in history that i guess have been left out or forgotten over time um but yeah so the link to his book will be in the description of this episode please do get yourself a copy i think it, it promises to be quite an enlightening journey if this conversation and this podcast is anything to go by um and yeah that's it for another episode thank you guys for, for joining us we'll be back next week inshallah until then, stay safe and take care.